Well, I know I say this all the time, but our text for this morning is truly remarkable. At first, it might seem a little bit strange as we look at it, but as always, the Holy Spirit included this text for a reason. We're in Matthew 17, and we're going to look at verses 22 to 27, really Matthew 17, 22 to the end of the chapter. Let's read it here as we get into it. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take tax or toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, these two texts are, are separate and yet they were put together for a reason. And we're going to look at this under two headings this morning. Covering the two sections, section one is verses 22 and 23. I called that the prediction of the cross. Again, verses 22 and 23, the prediction of the cross. And then secondly, we're going to see what I called the principle of not offending in verses 24 to 27, the principle of not offending. Now, just to kind of zoom out a little bit, chapters 14 to 17 have been chapters that are difficult to classify. We've seen in this kind of this larger section, again, chapters 14 to 17, mostly narrative throughout this section. And, and, and really what's happening there is various responses to Christ. The disciples have come to recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, but they are still those of little faith. The Pharisees and the scribes are entrenched in their resistance and hostility against Christ. The crowds know Jesus as a healer and a miracle worker, but they haven't turned from their sin. They haven't repented. They haven't become disciples. And our verses are the final verses of this larger section. Chapter 18 begins the fourth of the five major discourses in Matthew. And so chapter 18, we're going to have the words of Jesus again, the fourth of of five discourses. And at first glance, perhaps, these verses that we're going to look at, our text for this morning, seem somewhat trivial. We've got another prediction of the cross, followed by a strange miracle story about paying taxes. But there's more here than we typically catch at first glance, and it, it shows us some very important elements of our Lord's ministry and, our, and His method, as well as about who He is. Now, I'm not going to give it all away now. Let's look at it section by section, and so we're going to just jumping right in this morning. Number one, the prediction of the cross, verses 22 
and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, one of the things that we need to understand here is that Jesus and his disciples are now making their way to Jerusalem. In chapter 16, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, you remember, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is chapter 16, look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus confirmed it in verse 17. He answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus made that great promise to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And look down at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Jesus said he must go to Jerusalem. There's a divine necessity here. He must go and he must suffer. Now, Caesarea Philippi, that was 25 miles north of Galilee. That's when Peter confessed Christ. They were in Caesarea Philippi, north of Galilee. And now they have traveled south from there to Capernaum and to Galilee. And it seems that they have gathered for the final journey to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 17, verse 22, our text, they're gathering in Galilee. And then verse 24, if you look at it, they came to Capernaum. Now in chapter 19, after the, the, the words of our Lord in chapter 18 that were given at that time, in chapter 19, Jesus is now going south from Galilee to Judea and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Look at 19 and verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so from Caesarea Philippi to Galilee to to Judea, the next geographical note is in chapter 20 and verse 17. It says that now, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so what we have here is we have three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection that's going to happen in Jerusalem. The first one was in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem. That was in 1621. The second one is in our text that we're going to look at in a moment when they were in Galilee, likely packing and preparing for the road to Jerusalem. And the third prediction on the way is in Judea, on the way up to the city in chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, which we just read. 
Now, these aren't the only predictions of the cross, but these are the the three major predictions where Jesus shares with his disciples kind of on the way to Jerusalem. There's also a fourth prediction, if we want to count it that way, in chapter 26 and verse 1 and 2. Look, at you could turn there if you want. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so we've got these kind of three or four major predictions, depending kind of how you count them. Most most commentators kind of think of them as three predictions on the way to Jerusalem in chapter 16, 17, and then again in about the middle of chapter 20. Now there was one other prediction already in chapter 17 and verse 12 Remember there, and you can turn there if you want, Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. But that particular prediction was only to Peter, James, and John on the mountain. And remember, he told them in verse 9 there, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now I want to just show you a few of these other kind of more veiled predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection earlier in Matthew. Really, he began to teach these things in, in clarity in chapter 16 after they recognized him as the Messiah. But already chapter 9 and verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And remember, Jesus is the bridegroom in that context. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. And so Jesus kind of gives this veiled prediction that there's a day coming when he will be taken away and then the disciples will fast. If you look at Matthew 10 and verse 38, look what Jesus says there. He says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so there's this sense that if we follow Jesus, we're going to have to take our cross and we're going to, we're going to follow him that way. And, and this is even before Jesus mentions that he himself will die on the cross. And even up to chapter 17, he hasn't told his disciples that yet. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39, Jesus answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus mentioned this sign of Jonah again in chapter 16 and verse 4. And so Jesus has hinted about his death, even from from very early on in his ministry, but really he began to teach it to his disciples only after they came to recognize and believe that he was the Christ. And again, the first of these predictions was in chapter 16 and verse 21. Let's go there and look at that again. Again, chapter 16 and verse 21, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so we have the place, Jerusalem, 
We have the people who are going to be responsible for this, the elders, chief priests, and scribes. We have a general statement of his suffering. It says that he will suffer many things. And we have the the final result, if we want to call it that. He's going to be killed. He's going to be murdered. Jesus would be put to death. But that's not really final. Death was not the end for him. And on the third day, he said he would be raised. Jesus would rise from the dead. He would be resurrected. Death would be overcome. Now, an important part of this prediction in verse 21 is the word there near the beginning where it says, must, that he must go to Jerusalem. All of these things, Jesus said, must happen. They're a necessary part of God's plan for the Messiah, and they're a necessary part of God's plan for our salvation. Now we remember how Peter responded to that first teaching when the Lord began to teach the disciples about what what must happen. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we remember the Lord's strong response. Peter was doing the same thing as Satan. He was being used by Satan in that moment to tempt Christ away from his divine mission. And in verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so that was the first prediction. Now, in our text, and and we can turn to our text now, It's really meant to remind us of this one. There's not much new added here, but look at it again. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Well, this time Jesus doesn't mention the place. And instead of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, he simply says they. He doesn't say anything about suffering, but again, he says that they will kill him and that he will be raised on the third day. But there are two new elements here that we need to pay attention to. The first one is the word there where it says about to. This word was used in two main ways. First, it's used kind of how we use the word about to. When when something is about to happen, it's It's future and it's near. Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of men because they are about to go to Jerusalem where all of that would happen. But there's another sense to this word that doesn't maybe carry as well into English. And that's the idea of inevitability. This is a thing that is destined to happen. Now this word is very often used of divine decrees and so it has this sense of certainty. This thing must happen. This thing will happen. In fact, if if we turn back to 17 and verse 12, this same word is used in a similar context. We already looked at 17.12. It says there, But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The Son of Man will is about to suffer at their hands. There, there's that same word there, but in this context it's translated, He will certainly suffer at their hands. 
The Legacy Standard Bible translates this same section, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And again, the sense is that this is certainly going to happen. It's a, about to happen. It is, it is going to happen. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that, that what he's saying is, is definitely going to happen. He is about to suffer. And these things will occur. Another way to think about all of this then is, is to think about it as a prophecy. Jesus is prophesying about his future suffering and resurrection. And we're going to see when we get to the end of this gospel that it happens exactly as Jesus said that it would. And so there's that word about to. That was the one new element. The second new element is the word delivered. Again, in verse 22 of our text, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, the word delivered is not a special word on its own. It simply means to hand something or somebody over, to give something over, to deliver, to entrust something or someone. But this word took on a special meaning, probably beginning right here when Jesus says this to his disciples. It took on a special meaning of being, of, of, for the Lord being delivered into the hands of men. And as we think about it, the question comes now, who is going to deliver him over? And I want you to turn with me then back to chapter 20 and look at verse, we'll start in verse 18. We're thinking about who is going to deliver Jesus over into the hands of men. Well, chapter 20 and verse 18, again, another prediction. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over. There's that word. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over, there's that word again, to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. If you flip over to Matthew 26 and verse 2, Jesus says there, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He will be delivered up. There's that same word again. Skip down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There's that word again. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Verse 16, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And that's the same word there, to deliver him over is to betray him. And so Judas delivered Jesus over. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. The same word there is used. Jump down to verse 21 of chapter 26. Matthew 26, 21. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's our word. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. There's that word again. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? 
He said to him, you have said so. Now verse 24 gets us into some deep theological water. Jesus' suffering was part of God's plan. It was prophesied in Scripture, and, and by Jesus it was also prophesied, but, but Judas is morally responsible for his actions, his sinful action in betraying Jesus Christ. And I'll come to back to that in a moment, but first I, I just want us to see that this word to deliver, to betray, to hand over, this, this became the word to describe what Judas had done. And we've already seen this word already in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 4. This is the list of disciples in chapter 10 at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 4. says, Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Same word there. Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is the word to describe the betrayal of Judas. He delivered Jesus over. And so when we ask who delivered Jesus over, the answer on the one hand is Judas. Judas delivered Jesus over to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then they delivered Jesus over to the Gentiles. That's from Luke 18.32. Or to the Romans. And they, the Romans, the Gentiles, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. Again, that's Luke 24 and verse 20. And so there's this whole string of human causes and they deliver Jesus over and they are responsible for their sin. Jesus said that it would have been better for Judas if he had not been born. And that thought should really make us tremble. And yet we recognize as well that, that behind it all, this was God's plan. This was God's plan. There was a divine necessity here. There was a certainty. It was written in Scripture because it was the will of the Father for His Son to drink the cup of wrath in our place. Using a different word for delivered. Actually, I want you to turn to Acts 20, uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.23, it says, Peter's preaching here, and he says, this Jesus delivered up, again, a different word, but really the, the same idea here. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, and he's speaking to the men of Israel at this moment, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so there's both the divine plan, the divine foreknowledge, and the, the human instruments who were used. And so we ask then, well, why would God plan to allow lawless men to crucify and kill his son? Why would God ordain this from the foundation of the world? And the answer is really too great to believe almost too great to believe because we do believe it and, and we wouldn't dare say it if it wasn't recorded in a holy scripture. God planned this suffering and betrayal and the death of his son in order to save us from our sins and to make us his own special people. Jesus died at the hands of sinful men according to God's plan in order that we would not have to die, in order that we wouldn't have to pay the wrath of God for our sins. 
And this is really the gospel. This is the good news that, that we try to preach every week at Grace Bible Fellowship. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we see this, this just so clearly laid out for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says there, For our sake... He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see that this action that, that Paul is speaking about here was for our sake. This was, this was for us, and, and He made Him, that's God the Father made Jesus to be sin. Him who knew no sin, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the sinless one. He was the perfect one. He never sinned. But the Father made Him to be sin. He he made Him to take on our sins. He treated Him as if He had sinned the sins of everyone who was ever saved. And so He paid the wrath of God in our place. He paid the penalty of death in our place. He suffered and died in our place so that in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus takes on or took on our sin and and we take on His perfect righteousness. God has designed all of this in order to save us from our sins. And so this was God's plan all along, and yet the people, the wicked people who, who were used to accomplish this plan, they're going to have to pay the penalty for their sin. They are responsible for what they have done. And so that is the good news of the gospel. And all we need to do is to trust in this Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on Him. And if we trust in Him, His righteousness is imputed to us. It is counted as ours. If we are in Him through faith. And so this is the Gospel. And Jesus is, is, is beginning to teach His disciples the, these truths of the Gospel. Now the disciples, they're not going to have understood all of this yet. They were, they were slowly learning. Remember last time when Jesus said that He would die and be raised, Peter rebuked him. This time, they don't rebuke him, but go back to our text. They are greatly distressed. That means they were, they were greatly grieved, distressed. There, there's a, a, a great pain that, that they're feeling as Jesus explains these things to them. They no longer rebuke the Lord, but but they're sad. They understand that it would happen. They understand that it must happen, but they don't see it yet as part of God's good plan for their salvation. They obviously don't grasp at this point that Jesus is going to be risen from the dead three days after, that He will rise triumphant, never to die again. And so they grieve, and, and we too should grieve when we think of what our Lord endured for us. And what He endured for our salvation. But we should also, with that grief, we should recognize (coughs) Sorry about that. We should recognize it as part of God's great plan to glorify Himself and to reveal Himself to us 
as his special people. And so we grieve that our Lord had to suffer, that he had to die in our place, and yet we recognize this is what God had planned from before the salvation of the world to glorify himself in our salvation. And so that's the prediction of the cross. And as we go into the next section, what what I think we need to see here is the resolve of our Lord. He knows the plan. He knows that it will happen to him. But he is going to go forward because he is the Son of Man and he is the Christ and this is why he came. He is the Christ and he, as the Christ, must suffer these things. And Jesus is not going to back down. He's not going to compromise. He's not going to in any way shy away from what his Father planned for him and what he planned with the Father from before the foundation of the world. And that's what makes these next verses somewhat surprising. And I call this again the principle of not offending. There's a, a principle here that, that our Lord uh, uses that, that I think is intended for us as well. And so again, the principle of not offending, verses 24 to 27. We'll see this as we kind of go line by line. Look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma, drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? <clears throat> Capernaum is the, uh, the home base of the disciples at this point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, tradition tells us that, or maybe church history or whatever you want to call it, tells us that, that they stayed at Peter's house. And while they were there, while they were at Peter's house or, or wherever they were in this moment, the, the, these tax collectors come and maybe they come to the door, maybe they, they, they meet Peter uptown, we're not exactly sure, but as, as far as we know from this story, only Peter and Jesus are involved at this point. Perhaps the other disciples paid the tax normally. Maybe they were staying in different places. Matthew, once again, he doesn't tell us all the the things that we might want to know. He only tells us enough to make his main point. And this tax, it's called the didrachma. The didrachma, it was was most likely a temple tax. Now there's a, a possibility that it was something else, some kind of a local Roman tax, but but most likely, and after my study, I, I, I believe that this was the annual temple tax. Now, I had a little bit of trouble this week understanding the currency involved, but I think I've got it now, and I, I hope I can explain it to you uh, clearly. The didrachma was a, a Greek silver coin. It was rarely in circulation at, at this point, uh, if, if it was in circulation at all. But it became the nickname for this temple tax, the didrachma. It's a, a double drachma, two drachmas. A single drachma was equivalent to a denarius. And at least for me, a denarius, that's the main currency that I understand in the, the ancient Roman world. A denarius was equivalent to a one day's pay for a regular worker. And so a single drachma was a denarius, and so a did drachma, a two drachma, a double drachma, that was two days pay or two denarii. And this was an annual tax on male Jews between 20 and 50 years old, and the money went to the temple treasury. 
And it was paid in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so if you went to Jerusalem for Passover, you would pay your temple tax there. But it was also collected a month in advance before the Passover and sent ahead to Jerusalem for whoever wasn't going to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so that way they could pay the tax. And it was collected from all Jews wherever they lived in the Roman Empire. Now this tax was based on Exodus chapter 30 verses 11 to 16, which you can read on your own if you want, Exodus 30, 11 to 16. And that text specifies a half shekel per person. Now this tax was, was newly instituted at the time. I'm not exactly sure when it started. I don't know if anyone is sure when it started. But it was a Roman approved, the only Roman approved tax for um, that that the the temple system that that the Israelites themselves could collect, and so the half shekel in Exodus thirty equals the didrachma, which equals two denarii. And so half shekel is a didrachma. A didrachma is two denarii. And they ask Peter. Maybe Peter comes to the door and answers the door. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Again, I'm in verse 24 there. Now the question in Greek implies or expects a positive answer, and, and so we might maybe put it better like this. Your teacher pays the tax, right? And if you ask it that way, you'd like, yes, my teacher pays the tax. And as usual, Peter has a ready answer. He says in verse 25, yes. And I just, I love Peter. He's just always ready. He's always got an answer. It's not always right. But he's, he's ready. He doesn't ask. He just assumes that, of course, Jesus pays the tax. It's what most good Jews would have done. Now, there were certain exemptions for this tax. Not everyone paid this tax. Some people only paid this tax once in their life. The Sadducees thought that it, it shouldn't be a mandatory tax, that it should be a voluntary tax. And so they paid it on a voluntary basis. The officially, the official traveling rabbis were exempt from this tax apparently, but it's likely that Jesus wasn't officially recognized as a rabbi, but, but we're not for sure about that either, at least I'm not. But Peter answers in the expected way, yes, my teacher pays the tax. Our teacher pays the tax. Verse 25, he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, Now, we don't know here for sure if Jesus had supernatural knowledge or if he overheard the exchange. Maybe he was inside the house and Peter went to the door and he overheard what happened. But maybe Peter was uptown and and Jesus just supernaturally knew about the exchange between Peter and the tax collector. We've seen that other times in this gospel where, where Jesus just knows people's thoughts and hearts in a supernatural way. But either way, before Peter can say anything about this exchange, Jesus spoke first. Verse 25, Jesus spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And so Jesus asks a general question about who kings tax? Who pays tax in the the ancient Roman world. And we need to remember here that, that this is a time of kings and emperors and pharaohs. We're not talking about modern democratic systems. Who paid tax? 
Well, it's not the king's son. It's not the sons of the king. It makes no sense for the king to tax his own son because that would be to tax himself. Really, if I'm going to tax my son, I'm taxing myself because I'm the one who provides for my son. And Peter knows this, verse 26, when he said, from others, because Peter answered correctly, when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. The sons of the kings were free. They weren't bound or obligated to pay their taxes. And of course, if we think about this now, Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, that's what Peter confessed in chapter 16, verse 16. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Father himself declared it from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 and verse 5. The voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Peter now must have thought, oh, not again. You know, oh, I'm, oops, I, I messed it up again. I, I spoke too soon. I should have listened to him and not kind of jumped ahead on my own. Jesus is not obligated to pay the temple tax. He's the son of God. And, and what is the temple? Remember, the temple is his father's house. Jesus said of the temple in John 2.16, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so the temple is his father's house and Jesus is not obligated to pay the temple tax. In fact, turn back to the, the last book, the final book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And look at, I want you to look with me at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1, start at the end of that verse. Look at the end. It says, says the Lord of hosts, says Yahweh of hosts. And so this is who's speaking here. The Lord is speaking. And and look what he says in verse 1. Behold, I, Yahweh, I send my messenger and he will prepare, prepare the way before me. Now let's just stop here. Who is this messenger that, that, the Lord is talking about? Well, it's Elijah and or John the Baptist. And and we get that from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And so this messenger who's going to prepare the way for Yahweh, for the Lord, is either Elijah or John the Baptist. And it ends up being both John the Baptist and then later Elijah. But I'm not going to get into that today. Continue on reading the verse. And the Lord whom you seek... So the, this messenger is going to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. Well, well, who is this Lord? Again, it's, it's me. It's Yahweh of hosts. And really what it ends up being, it's God in the person of Jesus Christ or Yahweh in the person of Christ. He is the one who inaugurates the new covenant. He is the messenger of the covenant. And so this, this messenger, verse 1, is going to prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice here, notice there, whose temple is it? Well, it's, it's his temple. See that in the verse? He will suddenly come to his temple. And so this is the Messiah's temple. 
And so should Jesus pay tax to his own temple, to his father's house? And again, the answer is no. There's no need for Jesus to pay this tax. Now, let's just stop for a minute and think about this. What's going to happen now if Jesus won't pay this tax? What's going to happen if Jesus won't pay this tax? Well, Peter's going to have to go back and he's going to have to say, uh, actually, I was wrong. My teacher doesn't pay the tax. And they're going to say what? They're going to say, well, on what basis does your teacher not pay the tax? And then Peter's going to have to say, well, because he's the son of God. And then what happens? Well, they're either going to go report it to the managers or right away they're going to rip their shirt and pour ashes on their head and they're going to say, blasphemy! And then they're going to round up a mob and then they're going to come and crucify Jesus ahead of schedule. Now, you know, that's a little bit of hopefully sanctified imagination. We don't know exactly what would have happened. But we know for sure, because Jesus says it in our text, they, they would have taken some kind of offense. And so we have something of a dilemma. Jesus is not legally required to pay this tax. According to the law, he would be exempt from paying the temple tax for his own temple. As the Son of God, he is free. But he's also, as we've already seen reading through some of these verses this morning, he's also keeping things on the down low, if you guys get that saying. He's, he's keeping things somewhat quiet. Now, to those with ears to hear, it's obvious, as, as we've seen from our study of this gospel, it's obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. But, but to those who are blind, Jesus is no longer revealing these things openly. Again, in chapter 16 and verse 20, he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ after Peter confessed it. In chapter 17 and verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so now is the time of secrecy. After the resurrection, we're going to tell everyone. And as the reader of Matthew, I love this, we already know that Jesus is going to rise from the dead because we've been told about the vision. And so we know that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But we're keeping things quiet for now. But at the same time as we think about that, Jesus cannot deny himself, and he's not going to lie about who he is. And so look at what he does, the wisdom of our Lord on display in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish, the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so Jesus is going to pay the tax, the tax that he's not required to pay so as not to offend them. And he's also going to pay Peter's tax the same way. Now, some commentators think that Peter is is equally not required to pay this tax on the basis that he too is a son of God through salvation. But I don't think that's exactly right. I think it's best to see Jesus, including Peter, simply because Jesus is providing for his tax payment as well. In fact, the, because the drachmas weren't in mint, 
The usual way to pay this tax was for two men to join together and they would pay one silver stater, which is worth two drachma or four drachma or one shekel as the ESV translates it. One shekel equals one stater, which is a literal translation of the shekel there in the ESV. That's four denarii, the payment for two men of this tax for the year. And so this is the normal way to pay the tax. We're going to team up and Peter, I'm going to cover your tax as well. And so Peter commands, uh, Jesus commands Peter to go to the sea, cast a hook. And this verse is structured very similarly to the Great Commission where it says, go and make disciples, go cast a hook. And we're going to likely come back here when we get to the Great Commission and we, we look at it in detail. But interestingly, Matthew doesn't actually say that Peter did this and that it did happen, but it's, it seems that, that we should assume that this actually happened. I think by now we've seen so many miracles in Matthew that Matthew just feels like, like the command to Peter is all that we need to know. That's all that we need in order to know that this happened the way that Jesus said. Peter will have done what Jesus commanded and it will have been just like Jesus said. Cast a hook, catch a fish, the first fish, open its mouth, find a coin, pay the tax for Jesus and Peter. Now the tax collectors would have had no way of knowing where this money came from unless Peter told them. And they weren't offended, but neither did Jesus deny his sonship. After all, if a a tax collector didn't recognize the king's son, nothing would prevent him, the king's son, from paying a tax if he wanted to pay it. And when we put these two things together, what we've seen in the first point and what we see in the second point here, we see a remarkable thing. On the one hand, Jesus is committed to serving his father for our salvation, even to the point of death. Nothing is going to stop him or hinder him from doing the Father's will. He will offend them. Eventually, he will offend them and he will be killed. Now, as we thought about this, or as I thought about this this week, I, I thought often about First Chronicles chapter 21. And if you want, you can, you can turn with me there. Do you, do you remember this story where where God gave David a choice on how he would be punished for numbering Israel. <clears throat> First Chronicles chapter 21, I want to start reading to you in verse 7. David had told his men to Joab, especially as the the leader of the military, to number Israel. Verse 7, But God was displeased with this thing and struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine, 
or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Verse 13, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. And I guess I thought about that this week because Jesus, the Son of God, was delivered into the hands of men. And at the same time, He was delivered into the hand of Yahweh in order to bear Yahweh's wrath for our salvation. But even knowing that He would be delivered into the hands of men and into the hand of the Lord to drink this cup of wrath, Jesus was not dismayed. This is really the the worst possible thing imaginable, and Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him, but he was not dismayed. He took it all. And it was not because of his sin, as it was in David's case, but it was to bear our sins. And so we have this picture of the uncompromising Son of God. He will stand against the world and nothing will hold him back. But on the other hand, he will go out of his way not to offend these tax collectors. And so he will take a stand where needed, but he will yield where he can. He won't die on every hill. He will never sin. He will never compromise. He won't But at the same time, he won't demand everything that he is due. He won't demand his rights. If he can, he will let it go so as not to offend them. If he can, if he can do that without offending God, he will go that way. That reminds us, do you remember what we saw in Matthew chapter 12? Remember, uh, go back to Matthew and, and chapter 12. Remember, In verse 14, the Pharisees were offended and they went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Chapter 12 and verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and he ordered them not to make him known. And then Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so Jesus showed people who he was. But he also in great humility at times withdrew so as not to quarrel or fight. A bruised reed he wouldn't break, a smoldering wick he wouldn't quench. He's not going to quarrel or cry aloud. And so when the Pharisees come against him in this moment, he withdrew. Because his time hadn't come. And this is a principle then that we also are to emulate. 
Now, wisdom is knowing when to stand and offend and when to withdraw and not be heard in the streets. And as we think about applying this to ourselves, I think it might be helpful to kind of give you this picture here. A few years ago, there was this, I don't know if you are, are up on these things, I, I'm really not, but there was this so-called evangelical winsomeness. Do you kind of, do you know what I'm talking about? This, this evangelical winsomeness. And it was in, in high demand at least a few years ago. Very popular, very highly regarded. But this winsomeness often came with a willingness to compromise or an unwillingness to speak unpopular truths. There was this, a sense in which no hill was worth dying on so long as we can please the people and, and draw as many as, as we can. Seems to me, and, and, and you know, again, I'm not really up on all of this, but it seems to me that there's a, a different trend today. And it seems popular to be a, a tough guy, truth speaker. I don't know if you've kind of seen this, but you want to be this kind of tough guy, truth speaker that, that doesn't compromise, that, that just says it like it is, and it kind of goes with, with masculinity, although it's, it's, you know, I, maybe women do this, should do this too, but, but you know, if, if the winsome evangelical didn't want to offend anyone, this, this new trend is to offend everyone as much as possible with whatever new truth is, is popular at the time. Now, I, I just admit that I don't know the perfect balance in the middle here. But one thing I do know is that the Lord Jesus, he had it. And he will say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Or he'll say, oh, faithless and perverse or twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to bear with you people? And he'll tell his disciples that, that the reason that they failed is because of their little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Those are some hard words to receive. Jesus offended and, and he often even escalated a tense situation to show those who doubted that he was God in human flesh. Like in chapter 12, when the Pharisees accused his disciples of, of doing was not what was not lawful on the Sabbath. This is just before the text that we read when he withdrew. And he says to them, have you not read Now, if you want to offend a Pharisee, there is no better way than to tell them or suggest that that they haven't been reading their Bible and that they don't know what they're talking about. And and, and so he will say that. He He will just escalate this situation. Have you not read this scenario? And at the end of that exchange, he told them that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And so he will declare himself and he will offend them. And he was not afraid of man at all. And when he deemed it necessary or beneficial, as, as I like to say, he would sometimes hit the hornet's nest and he would take the stings. Wait till we get to chapter 23 where, where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! I wanted to do that. <laughs> There's, there is just, there is no gentle way to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And in Luke chapter uh, I didn't put it in my notes, but in Luke, after that exchange, the lawyers say, 
teacher, you offend us when you say that too. And he's like, okay, lawyers, I got some for you too if you want to get in on this exchange. And so there is the Lord. He is uncompromising on the truth and he tells it the way it is, but he will also go out of his way to pay this tax, even perform a miracle to avoid offending a couple of tax collectors who have no idea who he is. They probably came from Jerusalem and had never even heard of Jesus. And this is a principle again that we are to emulate. Paul picked up on this. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are getting kind of close to being done here, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says in this context, really starting in chapter 8, verse 13, all the way to, I think it's uh, to to the end of 23. He uh, he gave up his rights, Paul said, in order to avoid putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel. I just want to read from starting at verse 19. For though, Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those Outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings." Now what Paul is saying here is that in matters of liberty, and that's very important, in matters of liberty, he gave up his rights to serve others so that he would have opportunity to win them to Christ. Now he's not saying that he became a sinner to win sinners. He's not saying that that he disobeyed the commands of God in Scripture when he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He says in the bracket there, but not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And so in some way he became like them, but without breaking God's law himself. He saw himself as, as subject to God, but in matters of liberty, he gave way in order that he might win people to Jesus Christ. And so when he was free to do or to not do, according to God's law, according to the law of Christ, when he was free to do something or not to do it, he didn't cling to his freedom if he thought that giving it up would help him reach those around him with the gospel. Now we need to remember as we think about this that this same Paul who says that that he became as one under the law, we need to remember that he also rebuked Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Remember John Clausen just preached on that. And if, if you didn't catch that sermon, I would encourage you to go and listen to that. But in Galatians chapter 2, he rebuked Peter for keeping the law about not eating with Gentiles. And Galatians 2.14 says, but when I saw that his conduct or that their conduct, that Peter and those with him, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And I'll just put it in my words, I rebuked Peter to his face. 
And so the idea here then is that we should use our freedom to serve others, but we need to be careful that doing so, if we do that, that it doesn't lie about the gospel. Now there's, there's probably just so much that, that we could say here. And, and I, I, you know, I, I probably almost could take a whole nother time and just kind of talk about how do we flesh out the implications of all of this. But I don't really have the time to do it. And so I, I, I've been praying that the Lord would kind of show you how to apply these things in your own life. But just a couple of, of maybe practical guidelines in closing here as we think about when do we offend and, and when do we make way? When do we not offend? Again, first of all, we are always to obey everything that, that Scripture says. Whatever Scripture says is what God says, and so we, we never would sin or disobey Scripture in order to not give offense. We, we're never to, to break God's law or a commandment of God in order to avoid offending people. On those things, when it's, when the Word of God commands it and teaches it, we need to do those things and we need to persevere in those things even to the point of death, just like Jesus Christ did. But on things of liberty, this is number two, that was number one, number, number two, on things of liberty, or where there's freedom of conscience or liberty of conscience, when it's not a direct command of Scripture, I think there's a couple of things that, that need to, to kind of be balanced in our mind. First of all, we should, we should make sure that our actions never lie to people about the gospel. Our, our goal, like, like Paul says, is to do all things for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Lord. And so we're never to lie to people about the gospel. And when we choose not to offend on these things of liberty, it should not be for our own comfort then. It should be for the sake of the gospel. And when we choose to offend on these things of liberty, we should also be thinking about gospel progress as well. And then the third kind of general thing that I would say in this area is that as we do this, we need to recognize the liberty of others as well. Not everyone is going to make the same choices on these issues of conscience as you, and, and so we're not to impose those things on others. And so hopefully that's a little bit helpful as you think about applying it. If you have any particular uh, situations, I'm always here to help you kind of think about how do we apply these things. But just generally, brothers and sisters, we ought to be those who don't compromise. We ought to be those who, who follow the Word of God all the way to the point of death. We ought to be those who speak the truth in love. But as we do that, where we can in, in issues of liberty and issues of conscience, we need to defer to others in humility where possible. And that is the principle then that I think Matthew wants us to get grab as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're to be like Christ in, on, on both sides of this coin. And he, again, He is the perfect example in this. Well, let's pray. Father, we just truly grateful in this moment for this text that You have given us through Matthew. Thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit in, in inspiring this and, and speaking through Matthew. 
Thank you for your, your grace in our lives to show us these things. And we just pray that, that you would help us to, to have the wisdom to do this very thing, Lord, that to know when do I offend and when can I legitimately avoid it. Help us to do that well, Father. It's a, a difficult thing. We acknowledge. But we just thank you that, that you even teach us in your word about these things so that we can, we can do it. And so we trust you to give us the wisdom to do this. And we thank you for our time so far. In Jesus' name, amen.